Hello. Hey. Welcome to Rosé and DNA. I'm Deanna. And I'm Renee. And we're two professionals working in the field of genetics. We made it, y'all. We are officially in the double digits, which we cannot believe. This is our 10th episode of Rosé and DNA, and we couldn't be more excited to be celebrating with our wine and, of course, with our guest, Dr. Corey Painter. Dr. Painter is a force to be reckoned with, and we have so much to unpack today on the podcast. But just as some background, she received her PhD in biochemistry from UMass Medical School. During her training in 2010, Dr. Painter was diagnosed with a rare cancer called angiosarcoma, and since then has made it her mission to be an advocate in this space. She is the co-founder of Angiosarcoma Awareness Incorporated, which is a nonprofit devoted to collaboration between researchers and the sarcoma community. And since 2010, she has worked at the Broad Institute, where she is currently the deputy director of Count Me In, which is a unique program that launches patient-driven research projects across various cancer types, including angiosarcoma. So Corey, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you both today. Well, before we get started into our interview questions, uh, we always start by just talking a little bit about the wine or other beverage of choice that we're having today. Um, So Renee, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Yeah, well, this is the first time, well, at least on the podcast, (laughs) that I'm um, having a sparkling wine. I'm actually having a sparkling rosé from the McBride sisters. They are a Black-owned winery or, um, I don't know, group that puts out wine. I don't know if they actually have a specific vineyard or anything. Um, But yeah, they are a really great company. I've had some of their other non-sparkling wines, and so far this is great. It's like super crisp, a nice sparkling rosé. Definitely good for a summer day. It's a little crisp outside with some autumn weather, but, you know, we're pretending like it's summer in here. (laughs) Deanna? Yeah. So I am, like I said, I'm at my parents' house right now. So I had to dig into our like random wine collection. (laughs) Um, And I pulled out a wine that I've been saving since my 21st birthday. Um, I had, I went to Niagara on the Lake, um, just like in Canada, right across the border. And so um, it's a peach wine that I've had, I've had for years now. Um, and it's pretty good. I was kind of scared to open it, um, but definitely, definitely a very summer wine. So probably mm-hmm. the last that I could be, could be or should be drinking it um, this year. I feel like a peach wine is a very like 21st birthday choice. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> exactly. How about you, Corey? So I'm joining both of you with um, a, a lovely cup of Bacardi rum. And I happen to have this one because, because I bought it for my 16-year-old daughter. And I bought it for my 16-year-old daughter because she is an amazing baker and we really take advantage of her while we have her under our thumb. And mm. it's not like we force her to bake, but if she wants to be fed, you know, she can provide us with a fresh tiramisu. And to make a fresh tiramisu, you have to have Bacardi. And so therefore... I am joining you at 2.32 in the afternoon with a <laughs> party. We love it. It's a coffee cup. It's not even a glass of coffee. It's, just a- <laughs> it's a first. It's definitely a first yes. on Rosé and DNA. Yep. <laughs> that is a great way to start. Um, so I guess just to, just to get us into it. So something we love to just do with our guests is to find out more about 
you know, what they were like as a kid and what their childhood was, um, because we often know that that really does have a huge impact on kind of what paths they take in the future. So can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what what your life was like as a kid and kind of how, you know, that evolved? Sure. Um, I think a lot of people will be surprised to hear some details from my sordid past uh, because I have a very grown up professional sounding career, but I was for all intents and purposes, a terrible, awful distraction to every other kid in any of my classes throughout, you know, from kindergarten all the way through uh, grad school. I think I finally kind of figured it out in grad school. I grew up in Rockville, Maryland, and I was the youngest of three siblings and, you know, just had, you know, in, it was a great childhood in a lot of respects, but I think I have a couple things going on. I think I have both a very, I have a talent for math and science and a learning disability for English. And I think those two things were just, they just clashed when it came to me going through a traditional educational system. I remember walking in, kindergarten was great. You know, we got to shave the crayons onto the wax paper and iron it. And I was like, school's wonderful. I love this. It's so much fun. (laughs) And then I, I walked into first grade and they sat us down and there was a number line on every one of our desks. And the teacher had us count up seven and then count backwards 10. And it was like this big aha moment for everybody in the classroom, myself included. A lot of kids were like, aha, I know what negative numbers are. My aha moment was an existential crisis. I thought, I, I can't do this. I cannot sit at a desk and like count up and count down for 12 years. And I did. I just like did the, the math. I was like, I can't do this for 12 years. And I raised my hand and I asked if I could go to the bathroom and they let me go to the bathroom and I walked out of the school and I just wandered the neighborhood. And um, oh, wow. <laughs> my parents picked me up a couple hours later. It was bad. And that, that kind of set the trajectory off for my entire educational experience. I was such a rebellious, awful student. I never did homework. If I went through the school systems that my kids are going through now, I would have absolutely failed. There's no doubt in my mind. But because things were much more lax for Gen X kids, I could skate by. You know, I skated by. And though I think I graduated high school with a 0.6 GPA, my principal said with a a wink and a nod, you're good, kid. You've got the skills that you need to survive. And so let, we need an arrangement for me to like do summer school after I graduated and like make up 600 hours of detention or some ridiculous thing that neither one of us knew we would do. And they gave me my diploma and off I went. So that was my kind of introduction to the world. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it does go to show you like learning disabilities, alternative learning styles, really, we should be accommodating because there are so many talents that probably get lost in that in that journey because people are told that they don't learn in the right way when it's exactly. just a different way. Yeah. Well, so many people that I know in my world will have, if they're struggling with their kids or their students, I like to share that with them because it does, it has no reflection whatsoever on that kid's intellect, none, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think so many people have been given a disservice by not having other humans have faith in them based on their performance in, in K through 12. And I think that mm-hmm. there's a lot of minds that could be focused on things beyond what they had access to as a result. Yeah. Yeah. Was there a particular moment at all, maybe in high school or after when you kind of realized that science in particular was the route you wanted to take? 
Yeah, I'm happy to share, you know, how I even got got to that space in, you yeah. know, so mm-hmm. after I gradu- gradu- graduated in air quotes here, <laughs> I ended up uh, packing up my car. I moved to Florida with a friend. I became a cocktail waitress and a hostess. And it was so much fun. We made so much. I made more money then than I did until I was like 35 years old because <laughs> it's like working oh in the restaurant business. And it was a lot of fun until it wasn't. You know, we were in a touristy spot. And then in the middle of the winter, the tourists stopped coming. And we weren't making any money. And so I moved back home and I, and I, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I took some uh, classes at a local community college and I worked at a daycare. And it was fine, but it was certainly not life fulfilling for me. And so at the same time that this was going on, I had a friend call me in tears. She had she was a, a freshman up at UMass Amherst and she had signed a lease with somebody who backed out and she wasn't going to be able to make her rent. And she did not know what to do. And so I told her I would be up the next day and I would just get a job up there. So I packed up everything. I moved up to Amherst, no intention whatsoever of going to school. I got a job as a prep cook and dishwasher and was fine. I was, I was very happy to do these things until I went to my first party. And everybody asked what my major was. And I said, making nachos. And they looked at me like I was completely crazy. <laughs> And they just would not accept me. And I felt tremendous peer pressure to go to college, not because I had any interest whatsoever in getting a diploma, but just because I wanted to fit in at the parties. So I went to see, I I enrolled in continuing ed classes. I had never taken SATs or any of those things, had that 0.6 GPA. And I I did not even have the context to know that math and science are, you know, traditionally very hard. You know, I didn't even have that level of of a context for, for different subjects. And so I had had some level of interest in a biology class when I was in high school and thought, okay, well, that was interesting. Well, I'll just do the things I thought were interesting. So I took cell and molecular biology and chemistry and physics and calculus and all of these really, you know, looking back, challenging classes. And they were fun and they were easy. And I aced them all. And I went to the equivalent of the guidance counselor and I I, I said to him, I go, hey, you know, I don't, I'm not enrolled here, but I did this. And he was like, uh, come on in. And I, and so I never had to do any kind of like formal application process. And they oh, wow. all of the like freshman um, weeder class. I never took like bio 101, even though I was a bio major. And they waived all these classes and they invited me in with open arms. And, and I absolutely fell in love with the science, especially cell and molecular biology. That class blew my mind. I thought it was just fascinating. And I, again, I, I was only going because it was, it made me fit in. And at that point yeah. now it was interesting, but I had no, I, it wasn't even on my radar to graduate. It was literally just what I was doing at that point in time. Wow. That's incredible. I, it's just so interesting to hear that you could like enter college in that route. It's just, it's unheard of almost. I've never heard of that. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know if if you could still do that today. Maybe. I mean, who knows? Yeah. No, that's incredible. So then, so basically you got enrolled in at UMass Amherst and then graduated. No, no. No, no, you didn't graduate. (laughs) Not really. I went for for a couple of years. And again, I think you probably have a sense at this point that I have a little (laughs) bit of like an adventurous, rebellious that that Mm -hmm. goes through me. Um, I had... I had met who became my my future husband skydiving. 
during one summer and had a whole lot of fun. And we met because we were both packing parachutes at the same drop zone in Northampton. And it was so much fun. There was such a great adventure. And then the you know school started and the winter hit and it was really, it was, again, it was just kind of like boring. And, mm-hmm. and so I had developed a friendship with this, with this girl who was also a chemistry major. And we were kind of joking. We said, what if we just sold everything we owned and bought a van and just went? And and one thing led to the next, and we actually did that. Like two weeks later, we just sold everything we owned, and we we bought a three quarter ton Chevy conversion camper van that had a big sign that said Nina and Grandpa on the front of it, and we just we went like mid semester. We just went, and we went. The first place we went was Florida. I found a drop zone where I could pack parachutes to make some cash. And she was a, a bartender at a different place. And we just, we would save up, we saved up enough money to head out West. And we would just go from like drop zone to drop zone and follow the, follow the sky and did that for a while, for several months until we ended up training to become whitewater raft guides out in Colorado. And then- Oh my gosh. That I'm not kidding. Renee's when people literally my dream. When when that people say like what what would you do if you weren't doing what you're doing now? It's always whitewater rafting good. Oh, it's so much fun. It's a it's a blast. And so yeah, so we trained on the Arkansas River through the Royal Gorge, which is no joke. I highly recommend it. It's it's no joke. It's it's big water. And then we rafted on um sections of the Colorado River, the Blue River, and the Arkansas, and just it was a blast. And then um the season ended. I didn't really know what to do. I had met my now husband and was like, maybe I'll go check him out. What's he up to? And he was a military guy. And so I ended up moving in with him while he was going to officer training school down in Columbus, Georgia. So I went from being like a hippie, free spirit, live in a van, whitewater raft guide to basically a military wife overnight. Mm. And it was crazy culture shock. And I couldn't do it. Like I couldn't not work or like just whatever. I didn't have my degree. And so I was like, I've got to finish. I have to finish that degree. Otherwise I'm going to go out of my mind. And so I I called UMass and I'm like, hey there, friends. I kind of dropped out. And they told me, they were like, okay, this is what you need to do. I had to both make up all the classes that I dropped out of. I had to take classes in absentia. And I, I did all the stuff. And then lo and behold, I got a degree in the mail and it was a bachelor of science. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know. I thought I was getting a bachelor of arts, but look at that. (laughs) And so (laughs) we were at the time then living in um, Clarksville, Tennessee in the 101st Airborne Division. And it was close to Nashville. And so I went to Vanderbilt and I was like, I wonder if they have any jobs here. And they did. They had a bunch of technician jobs. I ended up being a technician in the lab of um, this doctor, Dr. Doug Vaughn, who's now the chief of medicine at Northwestern. It was absolutely the most transformative experience of my life. This man, um, he was from Armorilla, Texas. He was the chief of cardiovascular medicine at Vanderbilt. And he just absolutely treated me like a graduate student. He, he challenged me. He it gave me freedom and flexibility. He allowed me to publish. And so I had like nine publications uh, within three years. And he was just such an incredible mentor. He really cared deeply about the science. And he not only cared deeply about the science, he cared about how other people cared about the science. It wasn't just about getting the results. It was about the enthusiasm that he could cultivate in everybody that came his way in order to really um, dig in and understand what it was that we were there for and to have fun along the way. So my understanding of, of PhDs is that it, it does take a lot of like self-discipline and, yeah. you know, it's rigorous. Um, so 
did you feel through that that experience that you were at, at that point kind of prepared to move on to that or totally yeah no I, I knew without a shadow of a doubt I was like this is what I'm gonna do I'm gonna go wow. be a scientist somewhere I didn't know exactly what discipline um, I was gonna tackle but I knew there was not one shadow of a doubt that that was the path for me and so I felt you know I had the love for it and the confidence and all of that came from Doug and from his encouragement. Wow. You know, I had such major insecurities and hangups with respect to my, you know, because my intellect based on how I had performed as a student, you know, up until, mm -hmm. until that point. Uh, and so having this person external to all aspects of my life, give me um, the mentorship that he did really was transformative. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, I think even just hearing kind of what you were saying about him just motivating you to enjoy the science is always really refreshing, especially before you started the PhD programs. You probably went into it thinking or having a very good understanding of like how you wanted that experience to go. Um, yeah. I'm wondering if you can say more about, you know, what that program was like for you. Um, the PhD program? Kind of yeah, sure. Um, but just one more word about being a scientist, um, working with young, young, impressionable people. I will like there are just these key moments that stuck out in terms of like just like inspiring you to really love science. I had done a Southern blot. We were and this was old school Southern blot with P32 on film. And I had the film. I was so proud of that film. It was so clean with just like perfect bands. And I was really like, yeah, look at this. And I showed it to Doug. And he didn't just like look at it and look at the results. He looked at it and he just fell all over the quality of that Southern blot. You know what I mean? And it just, mm. it was it, little things like that, you know, that were that recognized the effort that went in behind. All of the little details required to get that result, that, those are the things that were really um, make it or break it with respect to me falling in love with science and then realizing what the impact of the, the results really meant. So I just want to showcase that because for anybody listening, yeah. know that impact that you can have on other people through that level of positivity. Yeah, I definitely think – I mean – where it's like training an animal, right? Like positive reinforcement is always better than negative reinforcement. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's that positive feedback is just so important for people mm -hmm. to maintain that confidence and that motivation to just keep going for more and, mm -hmm. and know what we're capable yeah. of. Yeah. yeah so, um, you know, it was pretty clear that a couple, couple events happened that unfolded after I had been there for a couple of years. I had a stepson that lived in Massachusetts when we were down in Tennessee, and it was really difficult to get to see him and to get him down to where we were. So my husband and I made a decision that we were going to move um, closer to him. So we were going to didn't you know he was basically going to change his career so that we could physically be closer to my stepson, which opened the opportunity for me to even go to grad school. I wouldn't have had that opportunity if he stayed in the military because we would always be moving around in two to three year chunks. So this was you know, just an opportune time to take a look at graduate programs. And I had applied to a bunch of different places that were all within like an hour or two radius of where he was living in Massachusetts. And I had chosen UMass Medical School to be among them, but it wasn't, it wasn't at all my top choice. It was just, you know, it was close and it made sense. And so I had gone on all of these interviews and UMass was the last one. I had sort of made up my mind which school I wanted to go to. And at the time, my husband was deployed in Iraq and we were trying to communicate over a war and distance and all this stuff, trying to figure out what next steps to take with our lives. And I went to UMass not expecting 
that I would fall in love with it the way that I did. But oh my goodness, the the first person um, that I met with was just um, Craig Mello, who ended up winning the Nobel Prize. Uh, and he was, he just like sat me down and talked about like the passion of science and just like, ah, and all the things I was like, okay, ah. And I got so excited. And then I had this meeting with Mary Munson, who's still there, who is just incredible female scientist leading the way in biochemistry. And then I met with this guy, Alan Jacobson, who's still my mentor to this day. He ended up being my thesis chair and he was just incredible, so smart, but also so funny. And it just really appealed to me that I could be with these people that had such diversity of personality and intellect. And they were all collaborative and they all just kind of like, it just spoke to me. And I just made the decision. If I was lucky enough to be accepted, I would go there. And sure enough, I was. And um, I ended up uh, studying and committing to a lab in biochemistry with this with this guy, um, Dr. Larry Stern, who to this day with everybody I have worked with is the smartest human and in a league of his own. I mean, he is <laughs> so smart. And to have the seven years that I had uh, with him being deeply mentored, I just feel like he set the course for the rest of my life in such a positive way. You know, it's especially like reflecting on the, on mentors. I feel like a lot of the people that we've spoken to have that same kind of reaction where mm -hmm. it's really like the mentors that have like made them feel seen and, and, you know, really push them to succeed. But it's really about like feeling welcome in that community. So it, mm -hmm. it definitely, definitely tracks. Yeah. Um, and so I guess after, after you graduated then from your PhD program, um, instead of kind of taking that traditional path of, you know, starting your starting a lab or kind of going in that direction, um, you accepted a position at the Broad Institute um, with the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project to work on patient advocacy. And so I'm wondering if you can kind of tell us how that process happened, because um, I think you know it's really unique, and we can obviously you can you can describe more about that. But it's really an approach that connects researchers with patients directly, um, which is a pretty novel, a novel thing that this project did. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, can you talk about how you sort of got to that path? And mm -hmm. if you kind of had to advocate for yourself in that position, um, as opposed to sort of taking that traditional route? Yeah, I'm happy to. I think there's a couple steps in between graduate school and, and working at the Broad that I would like to, to chat about first. Mm -hmm. um, as I was getting ready to defend my thesis in my grad lab, I felt a lump in my breast and I didn't you know, really know what to expect. But because I had science background, I looked into it, didn't look or feel or act like what a breast cancer tumor should look like. So I was like, oh, I'll see a doctor, but whatever, it's nothing. And it didn't turn out to be nothing. It turned out to be an extraordinarily aggressive and exceedingly rare cancer called angiosarcoma. This cancer only gets 300 people a year, and um, that posed some problems. You know, like nobody yeah. knew what to do with me. They'd never seen a case of it before. They, mm -hmm. um, it, it just, it, it became just blaring what it's like to be somebody in this world who is facing catastrophe with no data whatsoever. And it was just, I didn't think I had long to live. And I didn't think, I certainly didn't think that I would have a career or the career that I had. In fact, every aspiration, I, I was so set on having like a traditional career. I was actually writing my postdoc grant for ALS. One of my best friends had just died from ALS. It was awful. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm going to apply my biochemistry skills to that, to that mm -hmm. disease when I found, found my own lump. And the reality of the situation was 
when I was diagnosed and I did not think I was going to live, obviously all career aspirations melted away. I didn't care. You know, I, didn't, yeah. I hadn't graduated yet I was, and I didn't care about it. I was like, who, who cares if I have PhD? It doesn't even matter at this point. And all I want is to keep my insurance. That was my, my two main goals. Keep my insurance and see my then four-year-old child make it to her first day of kindergarten. That was it. You know, I had wanted to be a PI and, da, 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 and that those, everything was stripped down to those two things that I just wanted to do. And so I stayed in my grad lab and I ended up launching a nonprofit organization with somebody I had met in an online support group who had the exact same diagnosis as me, Lauren Ryan. And we made angiosarcoma awareness and what we were going to do, whatever time either one of us had, she was going to do the business and I was going to do the science. We want our big goal, like her goal before we met was to raise a thousand dollars and give it to the American Cancer Society so that they could cure angiosarcoma. And when I came along, I just like, I broke her heart. I was like, that won't do anything like, like less than anything that won't even pay for a couple hours of the person who's pushing the pens around to figure out where to put that money. I promise you that. And Mm -hmm. so I told her we have to have a different goal. I said, let's get $10,000 so that we can use that to raise $50,000. And then we'll take that $50,000 and we will pay for part of a technician's salary so that they can run one or two experiments on the side of a different project that will include angiosarcoma. And she's like, that's what we can expect. I'm like, yeah, that's what we can expect. And so we dedicated everything we were to um, raising money. And we like, we just became really creative and we ended up like fast forward to today and we have well over a million dollars in a bunch of different labs and, you know, created a way, basically made it so that people could only really get all of the money if they promised to share their data or their reagents or anything that they made as a result of, of the grants that we distributed. And, you know, I mean, it's, it sounds all good on paper, but you know, like reality the million bucks still isn't going to do anything. It's not going to cure cancer. It's going to give you a little bit of clout, just the tiniest bit so that people might invite you to their fundraisers and stuff like that. You know what I mean? And, and if you really want to think in terms of impact and impact only, that's what you're getting, you know, and it sounds awful, but we have to be pragmatists when we're trying to be impactful here. So mm-hmm. that's kind of where I was when I, when I was uh, in graduate school. And as I was trying to kind of open doors for that advocacy, people weren't responding to me because I was just kind of like this poor little cancer patient. So I was like, well, damn it, I'm going to have to, I guess I have to graduate after all and get the letters. And so I defended my thesis only to get people to respond to emails. And that was the only reason. And I did it. And uh, my, my, again, that, that same grad advisor that was just such an awesome person told me I could stay in his lab. And I did. So I did a modified postdoc. I ended up pretty random, but I taught a year of chemistry at a local college just to see, you know, and so that was kind of fun. I really enjoyed the students, but realized that was just not the, if I was going to live, that's not the most um, impactful use of my time. So then I I ended up pushing the envelope with the advocacy and I kept not dying, which was really awesome. So I ended up doing a postdoc in cancer immunology for a variety of reasons, but I thought it could eventually inform on angiosarcoma. And it was a result of that that led me to the Broad Institute when I realized it was still not going to be impactful and I saw this opportunity to do patient partner research. Whoa. I mean, an incredible story. So while you were going through all of this and like making these like professional 
I guess, goals or steps. Were you going through treatment at that time? Yeah, I was, um, you know, it, it took 11 core needle biopsies, fine needle aspiration, every imaging modality known to man, and mm-hmm. two misdiagnoses before they even knew what it was. Um, it also took um, a lumpectomy that I woke up from and was told I was giving a partial mastectomy because they just didn't know what it was, but it looked really bad. And it wasn't until I had that surgery that they even were able to diagnose me. And at that point, they had to go back, even though they had clear margins, they had to go back and do a radical mastectomy and take everything down to the bone because it's such an aggressive cancer. And sarcomas don't form these encapsulated tumors. They have these long tendrils that that spread out, um, sometimes only one cell thick. And so it's really almost nearly impossible to actually see what the margins are on a sarcoma. And so I did that. And then, you know, I, they didn't know what to do and there's no data to inform on treatment decisions. And the doctor that I had basically wrote a bunch of options down in pencil and said, if you want to look at your kids and say you tried, I guess pick one of these. And I did. And so as I was undergoing um, chemotherapy, I kept trying to network with different people to get their take. What would you do? And I ended up um, falling into the care of this really awesome doctor, Dr. Gary Schwartz, who was at Memorial Sloan Kettering at the time, but now heads up the melanoma and sarcoma unit at um, Columbia University. And he was just um, such a sound, uh, such an incredible sounding board. And he told me this, he told me like, you can continue doing what you're doing, you know, and maybe it will, maybe it will have some impact. We don't know. What I can tell you a hundred percent is that it'll give you a lot of side effects. And if the cancer comes back, that'll be one treatment off the table for you. And so I had already gone through uh, several enough rounds to make me bald and give me some side effects uh, when I decided to stop. And it's just been watch and wait ever since. And it's been 11 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, what an incredible story. And we're, we're so happy that you are here. 11 Thank years you. Later. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Thanks. I bet it makes a little bit more sense now why I went into advocacy. <laughs> it sure <Yeah>. does. <laughs> Go ahead, Deanna. So no, I was just, yeah, I was just going to say, I, I think the, the timeline of all of that is incredible um, and probably not something that, you know, you're, you expected, obviously, or something that you're, the people around you were probably expecting at that time. Um, and we know that one thing that you were doing when you were diagnosed was actually blogging. Yeah. Um, and so can you tell us more about, you know, how you use that as sort of an outlet um, while you were going through your diagnosis and treatment and finishing up your, your program? Yeah, it's um, I don't blog anymore, but it was so important to me at the time. I, I needed that blog to have a stream of consciousness in order to process the magnitude of what was going on. And I kept it also to keep everybody up to date. And then I kept it really to let my kids know who I was, because again, I was didn't think I was going to be here. So I wanted them to have more than a couple of pictures and I wanted them to have a sense of who their mom was. And, and that's the, that's pretty much why I blogged. And then I just, it fell off the radar mostly because they started to get older and I, you know what I mean? Like they just, you know, they, they had their own identities and I didn't necessarily think it was appropriate for me to be interpreting who they were and my experiences with them when they kind of came of age to make those decisions and decide who they were all by themselves. Wow. And, and one of the, we've heard you speak before and, and 
one of the difficulties that you've expressed um, with your with your rare diagnosis that you've I think you've blogged about as well is just given how rare it was the the finding sense of community can be difficult um, mm-hmm. and you also had a rare breast cancer diagnosis but not the the standard breast cancer mm-hmm. um, and how did how did this kind of impact your your perception of like being a, a cancer patient, being in that mm-hmm. kind of being between those those worlds of being like a rare of having a rare diagnosis, but also being probably categorized as, you know, this large thing that is breast cancer awareness. <laughs> it's great. It's a great question, and um, I'm I'll, I'm going to say things, and I I want to I want to couch this. In that, I mean, no disrespect whatsoever to anybody with any cancer, especially breast cancer. It's not my desire to disparage anybody or take anything away from their um, experience with cancer at all. You know, at the end of the day, it's awful. It doesn't matter what flavor you have. Um, but when I was diagnosed, I was pretty angry, to be honest, of, to be on the absolute margins and, and the fringes of cancer and, and to be kind of for lack of a better word, lumped in with a bunch of people where it was like a big, pretty pink party. Yay. And I just, I did not resonate at all. And um, several things used to really uh, fundamentally bother me. Like the amount of marketing that went into making people feel really good about what they were doing for breast cancer patients by wearing pink, you know, and like, but the reality, you know, I had to do those reality checks with myself raising, you know, tens of and hundreds of thousands of dollars and pouring it in. And, and I knew that wasn't going to move the needle. So for people to think that they were making an impact by wearing a pink shirt or having a pink trash can drove me crazy, you know, and, and, you know, you'll recall from the beginning of this, I am a, um, a fiery individual, you know, I'm rebellious and it would buy, just like, uh, dug in, in such like a negative way. And it was actually, it's funny you mentioned the blog because, um, I had to go back and review that blog to make sure I had not said anything too damning with respect to my feelings on this topic when I decided to, you know, work at the Broad on a breast cancer project. I was like, oh, my God, these yeah. people are going to hate me. But here's the thing. I ended up, you know, the, the focus of the project was on metastatic breast cancer. I had no idea being a cancer patient and being on the outside of that community that there are movements within the metastatic breast cancer community around the same exact frustrations that I had as a rare yeah. breast cancer patient. They, there were um, like several metastatic breast cancer patients that just railed against that image of a pretty pink party and the sexualization of cancer and all of the marketing and everything when they were just, they were not going to survive their disease. They were going to die a very awful, ugly death and they wanted people to know. And so Mm -hmm. we became, you know, we became fast friends, me and so, and and to this day, I have, you know, deep relationships with so many metastatic breast cancer patients that will never, um, that will never, you know, it spans life and it spans death, you know. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us more for anyone who isn't um, aware of what MBC or Metastatic Breast Cancer Project does? Um, just describe a little bit about kind of the aims of that project and how it's Yeah, going. sure. So um, the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project was, we launched that out of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard back in 2015. The idea was pretty simple. What if we built a platform that enabled people all over the country and Canada to be able to join a research study from the comfort of their own home? 
using remote consent, they could apply to be on the project either online or on their phone, whatever. You know, we were in an era of time where technology could enable something like this. I mean, 20 years ago, you probably couldn't do this. But now, you know, we're, we, we have the technology to do it. And along with that technology, there are people that are interwoven in ways that they weren't also maybe like 20 years ago. Just like I found my people, you know, with my tiny little over cancer, I found them online in a support group. Most cancer patients that are online, you know, if they're already online, they're using the internet to understand their disease and oftentimes finding other people who've walked on the, the same path. And if they're not, then somebody in their world is, is looking on behalf of them. And so we're all sort of part of this matrix, right? And the, the idea was let's tap into that and just see if people want to have the opportunity to engage with the, the research industry. And we wanted to create this really large and shared, freely shared database that would have patients, um, you know, information from the, the molecular aspects of their tumor. So genomic sequencing from their tumor and from their normal, looking at what's different between the two. In some instances, looking at the metastatic lesions themselves and what's different between the primary and the metastatic lesion. Um, we had their full medical records so we could understand what treatments they had, when they were diagnosed, were they metastatic at diagnosis, what subtype did they have. And we also asked patients directly for some of this information, and they could provide a wealth of information just based on their experiences. Um, so it became this movement, really, where patients uh, really helped us build the project that was part of the that was part of it. You know, let's not just build a study. Let's build this with the community and let's make this resonate to other people. Let's learn from metastatic breast cancer patients themselves. And so we built this and they told us what to name it. They wanted the word metastatic in the title of the project. They, they wanted to use that to educate people because not everybody knows what metastatic breast cancer is. Right. And so it becomes a talking point when people ask, well, what is that? Oh, well, metastatic breast cancer is breast cancer that's moved beyond your breast and it's in other parts of your body. If it's in your lungs, you don't have lung cancer. You have metastatic breast cancer that has metastasized to your lungs. And so even just having the, the ability to educate people through the name of the project was a point of pride within the metastatic breast cancer community. Oh, there yeah. was you know, certain colors that they wanted us to avoid just because they were triggering to some people in the metastatic breast cancer project. They told us the um, grassroots advocacy partners that they were thinking would have deep touch within their community. And they helped us understand the messaging. They, they were sick. The, the people that helped us build the project were really sick of all the promises that had come to, to, to that never panned out. And that never, they never panned out. We're going to cure it by blah, 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 blah. You know, what do you mean? Come on. We're sick of it. When you're a cancer patient, be real and be honest. You know, what are you actually going to do? And so we developed a lot of the messaging with that, with being mindful about that. You know, we, we are going to unlock discoveries for the future. You know, yeah. we, we, we make no promises for right now because we, un, we understand and, and they understand, you know, what, what is really going on here and what we're trying to accomplish. And what we're trying to accomplish is basically unsiloing data. We want to both generate data and we want to share it with everybody so that all researchers have a shot at discovery. You know, no more individual investigator has their little tranche of data and they hide it over here because they need to publish on it. And then they publish the tip of what they're learning and then all that underlying data remains with them. We did the opposite. We, we said, let's just generate that, that data, that very unsexy infrastructure. Let's just share it. If we publish on it first, woohoo! And if somebody else does, that's awesome. 
So in the metastatic breast cancer, you know, in that project, we have several hundred clinically annotated samples that are deposited into any public database we can find. And uh, that data has been used and cited in discoveries that have led to over 30 peer-reviewed papers. And, um, and we are preparing one now, but all those papers are out in advance of ours. And, you know, for the, the patient involvement, I feel like this project has just been so instrumental in showing that patients actually, the cure isn't, like, as you were just saying, like, the cure actually isn't the drive for patients to get involved in research. Like, Mm -hmm. being involved in that process, period, um, can be part of that, you know, can be therapeutic, I guess. Have you you heard that from patients who have joined? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'll give you two, I'm going to give you two complementary examples of just that one from the patient perspective and one from a physician in a rural community. Mm -hmm. Um, When when we were ready to release the very first data from the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project several years ago, we, you know, you you can only make, you know, clinically annotated genomic data so patient-friendly, you know what I mean? And we're like limited by some of the constraints Mm -hmm. of of the platforms that were made for scientists to do scientific research, but we still tried to make it as patient-friendly as possible. And so to that end, we had made all these descriptors and, you know, done whatever we could to make it accessible. We did a patient walkthrough with this woman, Beth Caldwell, who we knew did not have much more time and who was instrumental in helping us build the project. She saw that data before, you know, Nick Wagley, who was the PI of the project, even saw that data because we knew that she didn't have that much time and we wanted to get her in front of that data. And we showed her all of the graphs and we basically were, we were trying to figure out what would she want to know? What did she want to click on? What did she want to learn? You know, what was interesting Mm -hmm. to her? And she looked at that data and the first thing she said was, oh my God, I'm not alone. Mm. Wow. Like heartbreaking, but also. (laughs) Beautiful too though. Heartwarming, heartwarming. Yeah. Just knowing she wasn't alone. And I think that that is part of the driving force, that sense of altruism and that you're creating some like public good that's going to go on and serve as a legacy Mm -hmm. long after you're gone. Wow. And so, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so that's Getting like misty in here. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I can never say that. I can never talk about her without tearing up. And so yeah. that's just kind of an example from the perspective of one patient that was really critical in, in um, helping to both define and build that project. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, fast forward several years later and I'm giving a talk at, you know, I'm giving a talk and I was approached by this woman who was in tears after and she came up and she goes, oh my God, she goes, are you telling me that I can tell my patients that they can join this? You know? And I said, yeah, totally they can. And she was from like some rural community hospital in the middle of Arizona. And she goes, you have no idea what this means. And I said, well, tell me. And she goes, when I have to tell people that people that they have metastatic cancer or metastatic breast cancer in particular, she goes, it's, it's, it's just devastating that that's the end of the story, you know, and that I can't really do anything other than provide palliative care. And I just want so desperately to give them something that they can do. And they're always asking, what can I do? You know, what can I do to make sure that nobody else has to experience this? And, and now I have something that I can tell them and I have something I can help them empower themselves with. And it just meant so much for that physician to be able to empower her patients to make a difference for the next generation. 
in a way that is unique to each of the patients. You know, each person's tumor holds a piece of the puzzle that will mm-hmm. unlock it for others. It's just so powerful. It's, I mean, I love hearing about this project every time there's a there's a talk on it because it's just the the momentum is wild, um, and it really is, I think, a testament to involving the patients um, yeah. at every every aspect because that is one of the roadblocks we often get is like, you know, how many people are actually interested in helping? But I think that communication yeah. mm-hmm. piece is really, you know. What a lot, a lot of, of researchers yeah. can learn from. A lot of people are interested and, you know, there, there, there's varied reasons why they're interested. You know, a lot of people, yeah. you know, a lot of people in the metastatic breast cancer community are at the, they're at the bleeding edge maybe of patients that want to get involved. But when you have a common cancer, that's a lot of people. And then many people in rare cancers want to be involved for a whole different set of reasons. You know, we, in my patient community, when we were just getting started, we would celebrate when people would get the word angiosarcoma in their local patch news outlet. That was like cause for celebration. And so if you were working with the rare cancer patients who just desperately want so badly to be able to do anything, you know, and that's part of it. When you are diagnosed with anything, you are stripped of your ability to change the direction and the trajectory of what is happening to you. And when you have an opportunity to do something proactive, that is a, a step you can take that you have control over. And I think that that's like, that's such an important facet here is that you are just like out of control, your whole life and your mortality is out of control. And then this is something that you can do that could potentially change that for other people. And that's a very mm-hmm. powerful and motivating force for a lot of people. Yeah. And I imagine too, for you, you know, being able to expand it to other, uh, the metastatic breast cancer project to other rare cancers and, you know, even that framework sort of being a, an example for other um, disease areas in general, like the Rare Genomes Project for, for um, you know, at the Broad Institute to diagnose rare disease. I feel like that type of infrastructure is kind of being used in different areas now. Yeah. Uh, but I guess in terms of the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project and other, um, other rare cancers that you've been expanding this infrastructure to, um, in working on all of this, have there ever been times when you've really struggled with committing your professional career towards a topic that was, you know, so personal to you? Yeah, every day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> every single day. Yeah. We launched one yeah. of these in angiosarcoma and made discoveries and published in Nature Medicine. And I just remember, you know, every aspect of everything I do is so difficult emotionally and mm-hmm. like but it has to be done, you know, and I wouldn't, yeah. you know, it's anyway, it, it's very challenging. I just remember, I remember um, thinking to myself, like the, the one thing I don't want to do like for this paper is go through the references. I can't read, I can't do that deep of a dive into the literature on my own disease at this point and survive mm-hmm. it. But I ended up having to do that. <laughs> it was just like, so hard. And I don't think anybody could really relate to that level of challenge that I face daily, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that has its own set of, you know, challenges, you know, being, being somebody impacted by your own disease that will still likely take you out and facing it every single day at the molecular level, you know, and at the, the emotional level is um, absolutely, um, it, it is very challenging for sure. Yeah. Is there anything that you were able to to do for yourself while you were like for that paper, for example, to kind of take care of yourself as you were dealing with such a, a intense personal challenge? Um, I, yeah, the, the things that I have um, done to get any measure of balance in my life 
are having intense hobbies, super intense hobbies. And so, and, and people, again, this is like, they look at me like I'm completely insane. This rain that we've had this year, okay? This rain that we've had this year has led to the best wild forageable mushroom season we have ever had. And that is one of my, that is one of my, like the things I'm most obsessed with. And so every single free moment of my life, and even in moments that I'm not free, but I can pretend to be free, I'm in the woods looking for um, edible gourmet wild mushrooms. And I have found oh, that's amazing. 50 pounds of like incredible mushrooms this year. And I get like a little adrenaline buzz every time I, I, I find one. And so that is like little things like that, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Um, I have a silly question. How yeah. do you know if it's an edible mushroom um, versus one that's not? <laughs> from uh, a lot of experience and from using variety, there, there's so many things that you can pull out of the woods, but I only pick things that have no deadly lookalikes. There we go. Yeah. I feel like um, that foraging is like such a big thing right now, but um, <laughs> it, it terrifies me because of that, <laughs> that question. I would not trust myself to. Yeah, please um, don't. Serve, In fact, yeah, that. no, no. <laughs> this do not do not go forage i promise you there's i I get, I get lots of look at what i just found and it's like a deadly poisonous mushroom i'm like no no please respond <laughs> saying that you saw me say no <laughs> you know, so it's, it's not trivial the psa yeah exactly yeah psa don't don't uh go forage for mushrooms after don't do this episode don't, deal with me. don't do any of the things in my career path the way that i've done them <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I guess that's a kind of a good segue into, you know, the future, right? Um, you know, we always like to ask guests towards the end of our interview, mm-hmm. what have you been thus far in your career most proud of and what mm-hmm. are you looking most forward to in your next stages? That's a great stages? question. You know, I'm, I'm super proud of the work that we've done um, at The Brood with Count Me in building this platform. And I really want to see uh, rare cancer communities leverage this in order to build that infrastructure so that there can be discoveries made and there can be more clinical trials. I think a lot, there's a lot of work that still has to be done, obviously, obviously for all the cancers for sure, but especially in the rare cancers, there's still so much work to be done after that data is formed. You know, how do you get the drugs into the patients, how do you insp- how do you make it lucrative for drug makers to either make drugs or repurpose drugs that could go into the people? How do you get them to the patients when everybody is geographically dispersed? You know, and again, we're at this moment in time where I think everybody like there's been so much disruption from COVID. People understand that it's feasible and possible to maybe treat across state lines, and that it could be time for there to be a real push for, you know, decentralized or hybrid trials. And I think rare cancer patients are uniquely situated to um, not take advantage, like take advantage of that, but be disproportionately and positively impacted by mm-hmm. uh, advances in, in those areas. I mean, we're, you know, cheering you on. This is, I mean, <laughs> your, your trajectory has just been incredible. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, there's only, great things to come, I think, from from your energy that you're putting into your work. Thank so. you. Thanks. It's all the rum. <laughs> <laughs> well, last but not least, we have some fun rapid fire questions to bring us home. <laughs> um, so what is something that you would still like to learn or a skill that you're hoping to develop? That is a great question. Um, I would love to be, you know, skills that I'm really interested in right now, 
woodworking. I want to have a woodworking shop in my basement. I know nothing about it, but I have a lot of things that I want to build, you know, physically, physically with my hands build back to the like distractions. So that's where I would probably spend a lot of my free time. Should I actually get any free time? Ooh, what would you Yeah, build? I feel like you have. <laughs> oh, go ahead. <laughs> so, so I, <laughs> I have thought about this. So the, the number one thing that I want to build are beehive boxes. I'm a beekeeper and I would love to expand my apiary and like have all kinds of really cool like beehives and stuff like that and so it, it's it's something that that that's where I would focus I am speechless <laughs> everything you say is just like what <laughs> um but what is something that people often get wrong about you I think a lot of a lot of people have um this notion that I have been like a you know kind of on the right track goody two shoes my whole life um, and, and that's just, you know, couldn't be farther from the truth. And I, <laughs> I had somebody in grad school, I said a bad word in lab. This was a lab mate that I shared a bench with for years. And he, when I said the bad word, he goes, what did you just say? And I said, <laughs> what are you asking me? He said, you're like the good one. And I just broke down laughing. I was like, how I could have that image with anybody it was beyond me. But if one person had that, assumption that I had worked so closely with for so long I bet other people do too mm-hmm. yeah I feel like it's so easy to think that once once we're all like in this academic path it's hard yeah. to imagine that anyone took you know something less less than traditional mm-hmm. um uh all right so if COVID restrictions were not in place where would you travel right now Honestly, the silver lining of COVID has been not traveling. So I did lots of travel, so much, too much travel. And not having to travel has been such a sweet, gentle mercy in my life and in my relationship with my family and being able to see my children. Um, I don't have anywhere that I want to go at this point. Uh, I might at some point change that, but like really my backyard is as far as I'd like to go. Hmm. I love that answer. (laughs) Do you have a guilty pleasure TV show? So many. I don't know where to begin. Um, right now, oh, it's so cute, actually. Right now, I'm watching Golden Girls. And, and my Airborne Army Ranger husband, the, like last night, we were sitting down and he put Golden Girls on for me. And so it's just like, I know I'm, I'm with the right person. Because he will watch you know, like super chick flicks and, and girly shows and, and do it with a smile on his face. Who's your favorite golden girl? I have oh, to ask. I, I don't that is too hard to ask. Um, I know, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Betty White, I guess. I don't know. Something about <laughs> something about Betty White. She's so awesome, just in general. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, this has been, I mean, such a meaningful conversation. I feel like we've had our jaws dropped, we've cried, <laughs> laughed. <laughs> um, thank you. Um we always end on um, an opportunity for you to promote anything that's mm-hmm. really important to you. So that could be a charity, business, organization, mm-hmm. legislature that's going on, um, anything that you really want to advocate for, um, for the listeners. It's really hard, but I would be remiss yeah. if I didn't take the opportunity to get everybody to pull out your phone. So I'm even going to pause, get your phone out, and then <laughs> type in this URL, joincountmein.org. And then take a look at what we're doing in any single um, cancer patient ever diagnosed, no matter how old or how young in the United States or Canada, can join right now. And that will help us understand cancer um, at a level that we just don't have access to right now. Join countmein.org. Tell everybody you know. Spread it in social media. Let's get everybody signed up that wants to.
Of course. And we will make sure we, uh, as we promote this, we will uh, make sure that's tagged and everything. So um, people will have the opportunity to click right on. So we're excited to promote it for you. Thank you. Thank you so much again. This has just been incredible. Um, I think we were just so excited to talk to you and we could not be more happy that you were so willing to share everything that you did. So thank you again. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure to to talk with both of you today. And I wish you best luck in your adventures with Rosé and DNA. (laughs) Thank you. you. And we always end on a cheers. (laughs) Cheers. Hope you enjoyed the (laughs) round. We did. It's all gone. (laughs) If you'd like to nominate someone to be on our podcast, please reach out to us via Twitter or Instagram at Rosé and DNA or our website, roséanddna.com. And in the meantime, be well, be empowered, and cheers. cheers.